If you are visiting or new, uh, first of all, welcome, but we are in the, not the middle, towards the end, I guess, um, more towards the end than the middle or the beginning of, of, a, of a series um, throughout the gospel. So we are going through the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in chronological order. So not the order they appear in the Bible, but the order in which we believe they happened. We are getting very, very close, like we're a couple weeks away from the final week of Jesus' life. Um, but a third of the gospel stories are actually dedicated to that, so there's still quite a bit of, of, of uh, the gospels to go through. But today we're going to look at a parable as Jesus is preparing for this final week, and it's the parable of the ten minus. And minus is a, is a, is a, is a form of money, and we'll talk about, talk about this parable. This parable um, can be difficult. It seems to be pretty harsh. But remember, a parable is a story that is told for didactic purposes, for, so the purpose of teaching. Um, it doesn't have to be literal, right? And matter of fact, most of the time, you're, as you read a parable, you shouldn't be taking it literally because that's not the point of a parable. Um, so just remember that as we go through this because there's going to be some comparisons that we can make between um, the king here and Jesus, and there's some comparisons that you shouldn't be making with the king and the story and Jesus. And so we're going to navigate that to the best of our ability today. So we'll begin in Luke chapter 19, verse 11. I'm using the NIV. If you're using a different translation, it's going to sound or read a little differently. Um, let's begin in verse 11. It says, While they were listening to this, he went on, went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. Now this, this is helpful in verse 11 because he gives us the point. So this is nice when this happens. This doesn't always happen with parables. But here, Jesus is telling us why he's telling the parable, which would then help us to interpret the, the parable. He tells us that people are, are expecting the kingdom of God, to appear soon. Now, Jesus is working his way to Jerusalem, final week of his life. There are lots of people who have misunderstood Jesus' claims to be the Messiah and what that means. And so there are lots of people, and we'll see this um, when we get to the story of Jesus' triumphal entry, what we normally celebrate as Palm Sunday. There's a lot of people expecting Jesus to be a David-like king. And so their expectation is, is, is Jesus going to raise up a military and throw off the oppression of the Romans. That's what a lot of people are expecting out of Jesus. And that's not what Jesus came to do, but that's what they are believing. And so there is a, a, a real tension building here amongst Jesus' followers and what they're expecting to happen soon. We saw this a few weeks ago with two of, of Jesus' very closest disciples, what we call apostles, and them bringing their mother to Jesus, hoping to, to kind of elevate their status amongst the group. And you're going to see some more of this stuff happen here in the final week. But there's some misunderstanding, and Jesus is trying to help use this parable to maybe clear some of this up. And so he gives us this illustration in verse 12 of a man of noble birth going off to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. Now this happened with King Herod and King Herod's son Archelaus. And Archelaus, this would have happened about 25 years before this story is taking place. So this parable is rooted in some actual historical events. This is how you became 
king. Remember, Jerusalem and this area is under Roman occupation, under Roman control. And so you didn't get to be appointed by a vote of the people. It's not how that worked. You were appointed by the Caesar in Rome. And so when Herod became king of this area, and also his son, they went to Rome and did this exact thing. And so there is Jesus drawing from some historical events that people would go, oh yeah, I, I remember when that happened. That wasn't that long ago um, when this took place. And I'll, I'll talk to you a little bit more about Archelius because there's a lot of um, comparisons here with him in this parable. A lot of historians believe that Jesus is using his story as the basis for this parable. So as the king is leaving, or the, the person who's hoping to become king is going to leave, right? He calls 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minus. So you can do math pretty well. That, that's pretty easy math. That's one apiece, right? Now a mina was 100 days wages. So about three months of wages. So not a small sum of money to each one of them. Okay? He's entrusting each one of these servants with the same exact amount of money, 100 days worth of labor, to do something with while he's gone. He's hoping, what the hope is, that they will grow his wealth for him, that they're going to work on his behalf while he's gone in this distant land. Remember, there's no airplanes. You walked or you took a ship, and in the ancient world, taking a ship was extremely dangerous. I think I've heard anywhere about a quarter of the time you would, you would wreck. It was, it was a crapshoot. And so the trip is going to take a while. What will they do with this money while he's gone? And then when he comes back, of course, he's going to want an accounting of it. What would you do with it? That's the basis of the parable. Turns out, the king here, and this was true of Archelaus as well, by the way, was not a popular person. Look what it says in verse 14 and 15. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. That actually happened in the story of Archelaus. They sent a delegation after him, telling them he is not a good ruler, we don't want him. And he was very young when he took over, so the Caesar then did not give him as much power. Um, he had to prove himself to become king. The story of Archelaus is interesting in the fact that he lasted about 10 years before he was deposed and actually taken, removed, physically removed from the area. Um, the other thing is if you've been here through the series so far, the last two weeks, we've been in a city outside of Jerusalem, about 17 miles outside. Do you remember what that city is? It's Old Testament. Some walls came crashing down. City of Jericho. The only construction Archelaus did while he was ruler was in the city of Jericho. And he expanded the palace that Herod had originally built there. So Archelaus probably spent most of his time in the city of Jericho. And so Jesus isn't just pulling this out of thin air. Jesus is going to use this real historical event and person as, I think, the basis of this parable. Saying, hey, you guys know him, because remember, he helped, he built the aqueduct and he added on to the, to the palace that his dad had built here, and he lived here months probably out of the year. Now, he was deposed as ruler in 86 after 10 years of an incompetent and heavy-handed reign. He was not a popular ruler. And then that's when it's divided into the segments that we'll see when we get to the story of crucifixion. Now in the parable, even though the, the local people don't want him to be king, 
in verse 15, it happens. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. What have you done since I've been gone? Now remember, he's been gone months, maybe a year plus. It takes a long time to travel in the ancient world. They've had plenty of time to do something with the money that he invested in them. And this is how this, the parable goes. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. That's a lot. right? That's, this person is a, a very competent uh, business person and has was a thousand percent the next done well his response to him in verse 17 is well done my good servant his master replied because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter take charge of 10 cities remember he's the king what can the king do king can put whoever he wants in charge of whatever we live in a world that is very hard to understand this world you live in a place where you get to say, uh, get, get a say on whom is in office. And they're not there because of their mom and dad. They're, not th- they're there because you and I, hopefully, hopefully you vote, voted either for or against them. That is not the world that the Bible takes place in. The, people, the regular person has zero say over who is in charge. None. This person is in charge and can do whatever they want. So he says, hey, you did a great job here while I was gone. I'm going to put you in charge of 10 cities. The second servant comes and said, sir, your mina has earned five more. Still a great job, right? 500% profits. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. Real basic math. The more you did with the mina while you were gone, the more this, the king is going to put you in charge. The problem comes with our next servant. Then another servant came and said, sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back I could have collected it with interest? Verse 2 do a great job and are put in charge of a lot. The last one, which is interesting because we only get the story. Remember how many servants were there to begin with? Ten. We're only hearing from three of them. Don't know what the other seven did, right? Good, bad, or indifferent. They're not, they're not part of the story. Number three here just stuck it away. And <laughs> what we read is he put in a piece of cloth. I don't know, and please don't tell anybody where you keep your money in your home. I'm guessing you haven't, don't wrap it in a towel and put it in a closet. If you do, uh, stop doing that. That's a terrible place to keep your money. That's a, you're going to forget it, lose it, wash it, or it, something bad's going to happen. Uh, in the ancient world, generally, if you were just trying to do what this man did, what this servant did, you'd at least bury it in the ground. Put it in a box, put it in the ground, bury it, hide it where no one knows. Hopefully you remember, draw yourself a little map or something. You'd at least do that. So the point of Jesus telling this part of the parable is this servant doesn't care. What his money? So it's almost like he haphazardly threw it in the top drawer in the kitchen where all the pins and scissors and the stuff that you don't know, buttons that you have no idea where they go to and keys that don't run anything in your home go. He just threw it in there and put it away until the guy got back. And the, the master is upset, as he should, because he says to him, you could have at least just deposited it and I could have gained interest off of it, which would have taken almost no effort. 
right? I mean, very little effort to go down to the bank and say, hey, I'm putting this in there, which, remember, temples in the ancient world were banks. That's where banking was done, was in, was in temples. Could have at least gone to the temple, put it on deposit, and I could have earned the interest while I was gone. Instead, I've earned nothing from that. Now, if we want to try to figure out the motives of this servant, think about maybe why he wouldn't do that. So the king has given him cash, essentially, and more cash than he's probably ever seen in his life at one time. A hundred days wages, remember? Most people got paid in the ancient world as laborers every single day. So he has a hundred days worth of labor. And the king is going off to a distant land and, say, gets in an accident. Or the king gets to the distant land and the Caesar isn't happy with him and decides to lop off his head. Or Caesar says, no, you're not going to be king. What will the servant get to do? He gets to keep it. If he put it on deposit at the bank, they're going to know that that wasn't his. But if he just puts it in his pocket, essentially, it's what he's doing. If the king doesn't, be, if the nobleman doesn't become a king, the treasure is his. His motives are, I'd rather enrich myself than enrich the master. I think that's probably his motives. So he doesn't do anything with it because he doesn't care for the master. Obviously, I mean, that's quite a way to remember this. In this concept, the master is the boss. The servant is the worker. And I mean, he, he tells him in verse 21 what he thinks about him. He's fearful of him. Tells him he's a hard man. And then essentially says, you, you kind of cheat people. You, 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 you do things that aren't always upright and honest. That's quite a way of talking to your boss. It might get you a, a, a pink slip, right? It's probably what that will get you. You probably won't be working there anymore you talk to your boss that way. Now the master uses it against him, says, well, if you knew all those things, then why didn't you at least do something with my money? Well, he didn't because he wanted to keep it. That's, that's why he didn't do anything with your money, sir. Is Why would he? The treasure could belong to, to him. He didn't believe that the master would return as king. Now Jesus is telling this parable probably 10 days before death. Think about that for a second. What's about to happen for Jesus' closest followers? Jesus is going away. Not just for three days, which he will, but we know that we're not far off from ascension. So Jesus is going away. He's not going to be with them. But the promise that Jesus gave us was what? He's coming back. So for us, this parable, I think the application is actually, it's actually pretty easy. It's not that difficult. Jesus is asking them and us, what will we do with what he has given us while he is gone? Will we get to work with whatever resource God has given us? Will we keep it and hoard it? And do nothing with it. Now, if you're inclined to do the last, you probably don't want to read this next part. It's not nice. It's not puppies and rainbows. Look at how the parable ends. 
Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Well, it's like the rich get richer here, right? It's not about wealth, guys. Remember, does the servant get to keep that money? No. He's invested it for his master. But if you're going to entrust somebody with this guy's money that did nothing with it, who are you going to entrust it with? The guy who did something. You're not going to let him keep it. Why would you let him keep it? He didn't do anything with it while you were gone. What's he, what, what tells you he doesn't do anything with it now? People object in verse 25. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given, but as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. The words are pretty harsh. Now, I, I would not, don't take this too literal. Remember, this is a parable. It's a story used to teach something. So don't think this is, but our God is a God of justice. He is a God of love, 100%, absolutely. He is also 100%, absolutely, a God who is just. If he wasn't, Jesus doesn't have to come. Apostle Paul explained this in the book of Romans much better than I can. But what is, what is the point of death, burial, and resurrection? Well, we have a problem, and it's a sin problem. This is, a, this is the gospel story, essentially, in a condensed version. We have this problem of sin, every one of us. What do we do about it? How do we fix it? The problem is you and I can't fix the problem. See, the bar was perfection, and if you don't know this already, sorry, you're going to leave sad today. You aren't perfect. I know that's hard news to hear. Um, you're not. If someone told you you are, it was your mom, and she lied to you because she's your mom, and she thinks you're special. But you're not special, and you're not perfect. Sorry, I hate to be the one that tells you that, but it's my job, so I'm here for that. You aren't special, and you're not perfect. I think if you can convince our children of that, by the way, our world will get much better because we have a lot of people, young people and older people, who think they're perfect and special. And they're not. They're neither one of those things. And they run around causing all kinds of damage because they think and believe truly in their heart that they are both special and perfect. There's only one who's perfect. His name was Jesus. All the rest of us, extreme failures. Just, just a mess, really, when you think about it. So we have this problem of sin that you and I can't fix because we are not perfect. That's where Jesus comes into the story. Jesus comes, lives on this earth like you and I, but actually does it well. You and I haven't. He, he did. He is perfect. Lives for 33 years to have to offer himself as a sacrifice on our benefit, on our behalf, for our benefit, excuse me, as the perfect sacrifice to take care of sin once and for all. So his blood spilled is the price paid for the sins of everybody who had lived, who was living, and who would ever live. When we sing that old hymn, there's power in the blood, we mean it. We aren't joking. Now, lots of people were crucified. Lots of people were crucified and buried. Only one came back to life. And when he beats death once and for all, the promise for us is we can beat death too. Not because of how good we are, because we are not, but because of how good he is. So because we place our hope and our faith in him, 
Salvation is a free gift given because God is immensely beyond our understanding gracious and kind. But don't take God's grace as weakness. Because it is not. It is not. It is not weakness. And our God is a just God. And if we decide that we don't think we need this Jesus, that we can do it all by ourselves, justice is coming. And it will be swift and it will be severe. And if you think the story here in verse 27 is rough, man, a day is coming, it's going to be rough. I want to read out of this commentary. It's a Tyndale New Testament commentary on the Gospel of Luke, and it's a quote from T.W. Manson. It says this, We may be horrified by the fierceness of the conclusion, but beneath the grim imagery is an equally grim fact. The fact that the coming of Jesus to the world puts every man to the test, compels every man to a decision, and that decision is no light matter. It is a matter of life and death. There is no more important decision in our life, and we make a lot of them all the time, than putting our hope, our faith, and our trust in Jesus. He is the only fix. People have been trying, guys, for thousands of years to figure out how we fix this problem of sin. There is only one fix. There is only one who paid the price for all of us. His name is Jesus. put our faith, our hope in him, does that mean we're perfect? No. No, it doesn't. If you're perfect, as a matter of fact, you should get up and leave right now. We don't let perfect people in here. They're not allowed in the doors. We aren't perfect. We are forgiven. There's a difference. Me, being dead in my trespasses and sins. Hopeless. We are all in the Titanic, and that thing, guys, is going to the bottom of the ocean fast. But here comes, in the distance, a boat. And at first, it's just a faint little light. But as it draws nearer and closer, we realize that it is our hope. And in that boat is Jesus, and he is throwing out lifesavers one after another people who are drowning. The question we have to answer ourselves is, will we grab on? Or will we be stubborn and think to ourselves, as the water is cold and our legs are starting to freeze, no, I can tread water a little bit longer all by myself. You can't do it. You can keep trying all you want. You're not going to be able to do it. You're headed to the bottom of the ocean quick. The lifesaver is there, floating within arm's reach. You'd be crazy not to grab it, wouldn't you? Guys, he keeps throwing out lifesavers to us, one after another. And every day we have a choice. Do we grab onto that thing, or do we try today to do it all by ourselves? I don't care if you are not a Christian yet, if, or if you've been a Christian for a month, a year, or your entire life. It's a choice we make every single day. Are we going to get up, take our cross with us, and follow him? Every day. Some days it's hard. 
Let's be honest. And some days, it, by 9 in the morning, we've made a mess of this thing, and it's like time to crawl back in bed and start again tomorrow, right? Because this is not going well. And that happens to every one of us, and if you don't think it happens to every one of us, you're fooling yourself, man. It's okay to have struggles. It's okay to have doubt. It's okay to have questions. Our God is way too big. He can handle all those things. His shoulders are broad and wide. The important thing is that we just keep running to him. Because his arms have always been and will always be open. The one thing our God cannot take in this world is the hearts of men and women. Everything else belongs to him. He created everything, you guys. It all belongs to him. We can fool ourselves or pretend like it doesn't, but it does. The only thing he cannot take is your heart. You have to give it to him. What are you waiting for? The time, time is now. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, quite a parable we read today. A parable that, our man, at the end it kind of comes across almost a little harsh. But God, what we know is that your love for us is beyond our comprehension, beyond our understanding. It is big and wide. And though we will never be able to fully understand it, God, we're going to accept it in faith. We're going to believe that you are enough and that you've always been enough. And that your love for us is greater than your justice. Now, you proved that love to us by sending your son. God, we just pray that as we approach here in our series, the final week of Jesus' life, and this gets, this gets heavy quickly and gets pretty serious, that you would help us as a, as a body of believers to navigate this in a way in which we gain a, a better understanding and a, and a greater appreciation and a greater love for this Jesus knowing that he endures all of what he's about to endure for our benefit, that he gained nothing from it, that it was for us, that you love us that much. God, we know how often we are unlovable. We know ourselves. We look in the mirror every day. And yet you continue to come to us if we'll just come to you. Your arms are wide open. But we have to make the choice to respond to you in faith. You are knocking at the door. The question for each of us is, will we answer? Help us, God, to answer. To allow you into the very depths of our being and allow you to navigate our lives, lead us in the way you want us to go, Father, and to trust you even when everything around us seems to be crumbling. God, in a world that is often hopeless, we know where our hope can be found. It's in you. Help us to point others to you as well. Father, we thank you so much for all that you do for us. We're thankful most of all for your son, Jesus. It's in his powerful and healing name we pray and all God's people said.